0: This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Thank you very much. And um, when I announced that uh, talk earlier, I actually had a different title. Um, I don't know what, how that was changed, but the title is, How Does Art Imitate Nature? And that title is important, as you will see. Um and it is a bit of a complex topic, and I was wondering how on earth am I going to put this together in one talk, but I will try and some uh, spots may be a bit more abstract, but there will be examples and hopefully that will come together at that point. Um, that, uh, so the title of my talk, does art, How Does Art Imitate Nature, implies that art indeed does imitate nature, and that is a claim that has gone out of fashion. And to show how it is nevertheless true is meant to counteract that fashion. And the theory that, imitates or represents, that art imitates or represents nature can be called representationalism. That's how I call it, representationalism. And it has been there from the beginning of theories of art, uh, but not necessarily with positive connotations. For Aristotle, all the arts imitate nature, They differ only according to the modes of imitation, for example, with regard to the medium, the objects and the manner of imitation, as he says. Plato agrees, but he does not think that this is a good thing. For him, replacing reality with imitations by mimesis amounts to living in illusions or worse leads to depraved kind of emotional life. Others, like Hegel, will point out that it makes art into a mere reduplication of what already exists. It makes art superfluous, and so if you are looking at, um, get my first image up here, so trompe uh, images that try to be so graphic that that might deceive the eye. Uh, you may ask, you know, what's the point of it? Um, it's a just reduplication of nature or later example that Hegel wouldn't know, you know, photorealistic kind of painting for, for an American type, you know, with, uh, where you wonder why would you paint something like that? You know? um, most often, representationalism is dismissed with the counterexample of architecture and music, which do not appear to imitate nature. Music, for example, does not seem to have any semantic and representational content. In the words of the Thomist Etienne Gilson, we cannot say father or mother or filial love in music. Musicians themselves sometimes even make music's abstractness into a badge of honor. Thinking or imagining things when listening to music seems to be characteristic of mere amateurs. And while Enlightenment thinkers such as Kant and Voltaire thought of music as rather silly because it seemed to lack cognitive content, for others, Music became proudly autonomous as absolute music, precisely because it seemed to lack such cognitive content. For German Romantic thinkers, music was thus emancipated from the educational value or social usefulness that the Enlightenment found lacking in music. But for the Romantics, this did not make music silly, but rather more sublime. Absolute music meant that It was music about the absolute. And it is also at this time that the time of German Romanticism that another theory of art developed, which can be called Expressivism, not to be confused with Expressionism. In Expressivism, art is not about some object out there that is to be represented, but about the subject, the artist who expresses his own mind in a work of art just as one would expect, for example, for a composer of music. Thus even painters in the time of Romanticism claimed to paint what they saw on their inside, not on the outside, but what they saw in their hearts and minds. And just to give you a few examples of that, Caspar David Friedrich, these kind of paintings like visions of something you wouldn't find in nature, and this combination of nature and architecture, for example, is unusual. But it is something we see on the outside, not um, on the inside rather than the outside. And the other things that look like vision that come towards you, like an epiphany or manifestation of something absolute um, or something that uses indeed um, architecture, architectural features to invoke something uh, holy and sacred in, in a way. And a final example of that sort here. Um, yeah. Let's hold that to take the content from one's heart does not necessarily imply a form of crude emoting. It it could also mean to express an insight of a more spiritual or transcendent kind. The goal for the author was in any case to be authentic in expressing his mind or soul or experience. And sometimes this led to a prophetic posturing even or celebrated the cult of the genius as someone able to connect with a deeper or more profound strata within the human subject. And theories of this expressivist kind can be found in Schleiermacher, Schelling, Croce, and Tolstoy. While this idea was prominent in the 19th century, the 20th century saw the beginning of abstract art and with it the theory of formalism. That's the third one, so representationalism, uh, expressivism and formalism. Here it is not even the mind of the author or artist that matters, let alone the representational content of art, but just the mere form of the work as such, its colors and shapes and similar features. Abstract painting, as the main example, does not feature any content and here for an example. And the mind of the artist is not of interest either. The mind of the author is often considered inaccessible and private in any case, and thus irrelevant. Art is to be looked at just for its own sake and in and by itself without any relation to anything else outside of it, neither to an object nor a subject. The medium itself, therefore, is the message, as is, again, most obvious in abstract painting where forms, shapes and colors are explored in their own right. What matters alone is what Clive Bell and Roger Fry called, at that time, significant form. Though what makes form significant is not so clear at all. Now, leaving aside some other possible definitions of art, which some of them tend to be circular or arguably problematic in other kinds, I think one can see these as the main three paradigmatic theories of art. They do form, as can be seen, a historical progression, which naturally raises questions about the reason for this progression from representationalism to expressivism, to formalism. Why indeed did new theories develop beginning in the late 18th century? Why is representationalism rejected at that time, at that time, but not earlier? One of my historical claims would be that representationalism is not rejected for some logical or aesthetical reason but because for the modern mind, reality itself has ceased to be the locus of meaning and intelligibility. I would claim that nominalism and modern naturalism are the ancestors of this development and theological voluntarism, if not outright atheism is its root. If there is no intelligibility to reality, if the world at large is not imbued with a meaning that uh, by what a creator had in mind when making it, then nature becomes meaningless moving matter or worse as an evolution theory, cruel and red in tooth and claw. And the question then arises, why would anyone want to look at such a thing or delight in it? Why would we in all art imitate something that we consider meaningless and unintelligibly cruel? If, on the other hand, we can show that art always imitates nature, whether consciously or not, then this may indicate that nature is indeed worth representing. Why, for example, do environmentalist artists, who try to articulate something about this nature by extending some of its features, find it worth doing so? Another famous example, a dirty spiral. The answer to that aesthetical question would necessarily lead us to a larger metaphysical claim beyond art. And the claim may ultimately even include the existence of God himself. And that is why I would say that topic is important. My proposal, however, is not simple. It does not seek to exclude the other proposals so representationism as opposed to the other ones. They have their proper place. Representationism is indeed not the whole story. And I think we can learn this from modern developments. Expressivism and formalism do have their proper role as well. And only together do these theories make sense of art. Now, the way to show that is uh, how to show that they belong together is to make a yet more controversial claim, perhaps, namely that art is like a language even if in a somewhat broader sense of the term. Since language is about sem- something it speaks of something, representationalism seems to be implied. Language is the making of meaning and that can be said of art too. And I think it has been said by John Haldane here at Baylor <laughs> when he was here. Um, and I think that is quite right. But a making of meaning is indeed something like a language. But this approach of artist language includes the other theories as well as one can see if one understands language with Aristotle and St. Thomas Aquinas. Famously, Aristotle develops in Periheminius and St. Thomas comments on what has been called the semantic triangle. And without going into details about that, the features that concern us here are the words that the words of our language do not typically mean or present objects out in the world or by themselves. So, we the kind of have words, words and you have objects. But how are they related? Well, uh, just looking at the word will not tell you that. If you don't know German, if you hear the word Baum, you will not know that it refers to a tree. That's why you have to learn German. Only then will you have an object in mind and that tree that it refers to. And so it is by way of your mind that has learned these things that the word um, refers to the object. So you have to make it deeper. Um, but it is in any case the mind that gives words the meaning in the first place. It is not primarily language and words that represent things, but the mind. Nobody has to learn that he has a tree in mind when thinking about a tree is intrinsic to the mind to mean what it thinks about or perceives. Language or words only borrow the feature of meaning of being meaningful from the mind. So, in a way, this relationship is the primary one and that is borrowed by the relationship between uh, language and reality. Hence, in order to have language, you need all three, the object, the mind and the world, the whole triangle. Now, if art is something like a language, then it will also need all three. And this is exactly what we find. The three theories correspond to the three angles of this triangle. The object part corresponds to representationalism, the mind to expressivism and formalism to the world or linguistic medium. Each taken by itself or also only two out of the three will not suffice. They will end up being reductionist theories of art, just as there are analogous reductionist theories of language. To understand art as a language means to understand it as a medium that embodies a meaning. And the medium varies with a specific type of art. It may be the medium of paint, rock or sound. But in all cases, it is true that the fact that the medium embodies a meaning is derivative from the mind and it is only the mind which means intrinsically or is about an object or referent. The historical progression of uh, theories of art described earlier is one towards something further and further removed from the object or referent, first towards the mind and then to the medium itself. And sometimes such movements to an extreme uh, end up in a curious kind of dialectic where the extremes meet A position that negates another one takes on the very same features. And one such dialectic may be the following. Formalist aesthetics correspond to abstract painting. But once painting casts out any represented object, it starts to become itself an object. Painting becomes sculpture. And this can be illustrated in more than one way, but most clearly perhaps with the development of Frank Stella's work. Oh, that was actually for nature. <laughs> Leave that aside. Uh, so uh, Frank Stella, I think that's bought from the 1960s. Um, so you have abstract arts, formalistic, um, and um, shapes and colors, basically. Um, but you also see already it's moving away from the wall. It's an object that's sort of stuck to the wall, it looks like. And that is going to be getting more and more pronounced as this artist progresses, you know. Uh, So this is perhaps not yet a sculpture, but it's not quite clear, you know, sort of something in between. But that is getting stronger and stronger, you know. And the final kind of stage, uh, it is really sculpture. It's not painting anymore, right? So if painting casts out the object, it itself becomes the object, you know. So that's just, you know, to uh, illustrate, you know, what happens, one of the many things that can happen if you become reductionist or forget some part of that form of art. You need the whole triangle in other words. Now, to say first something about representation in that angle, um, I need to make a further distinction. Um, Also, not to be simple, even within arts that directly represent something like painting, one has to distinguish various kinds of things that are being imitated, and all of them are forms of nature. And I'm talking about three different kinds of nature. And uh, I'll give you a brief abstract kind of overview and then illustrate it with some examples and hopefully that will become clear the latest uh, then. What I will call first nature refers roughly to what Aristotle would call the substantial form form or nature of a particular thing, that which makes it the kind of thing that it is, its particular way of participating in being. It is whatever something is in and by itself. This is the way in which we talk, for example, the nature of an apple or of hydrogen or of a shark. What I will call second nature is what can simply be understood in our ordinary language sense of second nature. It is something that we acquire as a habit, something that, as we say, becomes second nature to us. This is largely the realm of culture. Everything has a first nature, but perhaps only human beings have culture or cultural habits that become second nature. For human beings, it is natural to have culture. It is part of our nature, but it is something that we do not have automatically. Culture does not come to us by nature in the same sense in which an animal has predetermined instincts. We have culture by developing things and forms of behavior that go beyond our first nature, yet use the very faculties with which our first nature equips us by imitating, explicating and expanding these faculties. Languages, fashions, social roles, institutions, clothing and other things come to mind, but also art, music, and architecture. Hence, if the arts imitate second nature, then they are in a peculiar way way, themselves part of what they imitate. Finally, what I'm going to call somewhat awkwardly third nature is to be understood in the sense of Spinoza's Deus Siva Natura, God or nature. Nature here is related to the divine or to whatever the ultimate and all Deus et Omnia is understood to be. Voltaire lets nature exclaim, Je suis le grand tout, I am the great all. This is nature in its global, somewhat emphatic sense of the one and all, the eternal, the cosmos, God, or the absolute, again, whatever it is understood to be. Now, art imitates nature in all three senses, whether it knows it or not, so at least I claim. And let me illustrate this with an unlikely candidate with architecture. Every house, is part of our second nature. As such, it imitates our first nature in its very basic operations and functions which it serves. For a house, too, is like an organism in which electricity takes the place of the nervous system. The toilets, the place of digestion, libraries and studies, the place of the brain, windows and air conditioning, the place of lungs and breathing, And some architects now like to display all this even very prominently as in the Centre Pompidou in Paris, for example. So they're aware of that and just want to say, well, why do we hide that? You know Why don't we just put it out there? Or the skeleton, you know, I mean, you see the frame of the building. Windows, furthermore, take the place of the eyes, which have in turn often be called the windows of the soul. Windows together with doors are the place of looking in and out, of encountering others and of turning a face towards them. Hence buildings have faces, facades we call them, they have a physiognomy. Oh, this is more something Pompili. Mm-hmm. So here, this is how St. Peter's in Rome turns its face towards you, you encounter it, it's its countenance. Just to give you another example. So buildings have that. But, you know, um, this very same Santa Pompidou I just showed you, you know, seems to refuse that, you know, it refuses that encounter and you desperately go around and try to find a legible face, you know, and you don't. You know? uh, but that itself, that refusal, I think, illustrates that it intrinsically is doing that and we're looking for it. Quite obviously, architecture will imitate second nature in reflecting the culture of its age, climate, country or particular social locations or functions in a city. Plus devotion, Harris, and we could talk about the early absolutist age and how it is reflected in that. And yeah, and then f- finally, third nature. Some houses may have little prayer corners. Helgord Winkle, they call that in the Black Forest, and Heidegger writes about that. And this is an example of such a thing, or maybe more what Heidegger knew uh, was this kind of. Places where you have crucifix and so forth. So there is, there's God there in that house, and that's uh, something we expect, I think, in some sense, in a house too. But even if you don't have that, um, there is the hearth and the kitchen in the house. And that is not just about food and eating, but also for the intimation of third nature. The hearth has always been a place for praying and offering thanks to God. as in ancient Rome. It's a place for the household gods, like the Penatis. And all of these things could be uh, illustrated much further. Ultimate things can be invoked even in the bedroom, which is a place not only for sleep, but also for begetting and giving birth, as well as for death, a place for keeping prayer vigil at the bedside of the deceased. And hence we speak of the death bed and sleep has always been seen as an image of death. And that is true for just ordinary houses. I could have much easier illustrated that, of course, by showing you a cathedral or something where it's very obvious and different uh, cases emphasize different aspects, first, second or third nature, but I think they are always all of them there. But of course, you know, I mean, the Hagia Sophia gives you the sense of God and all. I mean, this is emphatically embracing a whole kind of world, really, that you are entering into. And cupolas are typically features of that, but sometimes also spires or things that have a higher kind of elevation. Uh, But even in non Christian contexts, so Chinese uh, um, uh, temples with a vault of heaven, you know, it's always the vault. Um, The heavens, the skies, are intimations of the third nature, and they are taken up by uh, architecture here. Yeah, and to move to um, painting. Let me give you three examples here. In a still life, we may very straightforwardly observe the depiction of things in their basic nature, whether biological or inorganic. There are olives and nuts. So, the olives are, uh, are the nuts. so organic kind of things. Um, But also um, the painter obviously takes pride in his ability to display the physical nature of metal, glass and uh, liquid. Second nature can be seen in the style of the vessels, perhaps not so pronounced in this picture, but it is there. And third nature, you may wonder where that comes in, but uh, I think in this kind of painting it can often be indicated by the transitoriness of life, and sometimes you have actually broken glass to uh, illustrate that. And sometimes, uh, I thing obvious kind of memento mori kind of pictures, you know, um, Vanitas pictures where you are thinking of death, you know, that means also the meaning of life. But even here, I think, um, here it's not so obvious, but I think Gilson is actually right when he points out what is depicted here is the silent act of existence itself and that this is actually the true topic of this painting. It shows beings in their being the capital B as participating in that being which constitutes the ultimate horizon of all things of all reality. Now similar things can be said about the famous uh, peasant shoes of Van Gogh about Heidegger which what Heidegger commented. Um, In Heidegger's reading, these shoes speak of the walk through first nature with its earth and seeds and seasons. They speak of the life and culture of the peasant as well as the fate that governs their life and death in a course of life, whose path mirrors the laborious walk through the furrows of the field. It is an image of the temporality of being and the faithfulness of existence. Finally, portrait by Van Dyck, which you can find in Washington DC. National Gallery of Art. And here we see represented not only a biologically beautiful woman, that's obviously the first nature kind of sense, but also culture, particularly in the style of her dress that unlike perhaps the more timeless peasant shoes, give us an idea of the fashions of her time and world. And you can uh, notice where that painting or when the painting was done just based on that. It also gives us an outlook into a landscape up here that intimates a larger world and perhaps not so pronounced, but it is there. Ultimately, it's the world and history as a whole in which she lives and moves and has her being. Curtains and towers, a symbol of power, authority and rank, but also of the vicissitudes of history to which such an elevated public life is exposed. Does this painting depict a woman who was a believer? We don't know. But every human being is made in the image and likeness of God and therefore reflects God. That is, uh, third nature is very naturally here implied. And the painter Paul Cézanne, you may know Paul Cézanne, broke off his attempt to paint the French president, Clemenceau, already in the second sitting because, as he put it, he was not able to paint anyone who did not believe in God. Uh, there's actually a whole backstory to artistry that somebody should really uh, write. Uh, who, who, who knows that Cézanne was a daily communicant, for example, right? Isn't that something we would like to know? <clears throat> but, so that's, uh, but he was very sensitive to that fact here. As to music, uh, I will just point here to Boethius' uh, famous threefold distinction between musica humana, musica mundana, and musica instrumentalis. So musica humana, the human music, concerns our own first nature, the musical ratio governing human nature with its proportions between soul and body, as well as within soul and body each. Instrumental music is music made on instruments by the craft of man, by tension upon a string, by breath, by water or by percussion. All these are elements of human making and therefore our second nature. Musica mundana, music of the world, is cosmic music governing the the movement of the heavens and hence third nature. Boethius and others found in the movements of the heavens is celestial music inscribed into the laws of the universe. Today we would rather talk, um, but analogously so, about the overtone series inscribed into the laws of physics. And that is something that governs all of physical reality. So that's the third sense of the nature. Much more could and would need to be said about all of these, but even in contemporary thought and music, all these aspirations could be shown to be present. As to a third nature, we can quote as a witness Gustav Mahler, who said, A symphony must be like the world, it must contain everything. Similar things can be found in literature, which I'll not discuss at this point. When, for example, Flannery O'Connor says, the serious fiction writer always writes about the whole world, no matter how limited his particular scene. Or Victor Hugo in Les Miserables, this book is a drama whose leading personage is the infinite. I think that is, uh, he means it. And I think that is true. Now, all of this is still not the whole story. This is almost still preparatory for what I want to say. Uh, It is an an important part, though, Um, for the imitation of nature happens not only within the angle of representation. Again, we shouldn't forget there are three angles and all of them have its uh, imitate nature in a peculiar kind of way. And I will refrain from talking about the medium or pure form in this lecture, because that would require us to look extendedly at each art form. But as to the mind angle, there are some things to note about our natures as authors and makers of art, and how in this, too, art is an imitation of all three natures, as I just explained. Our first nature is perceiving minds. Our second nature is makers of tools and arts. And thirdly, how we imitate God in doing so. Art as imitation of nature has to do with our own nature in particular, because art is specific to us. Neither God, nor angels, nor animals make art. Only we do. Let me explain. Philosophers are notoriously perplexed by the question of how to define art. But as Mary Mothersill has pointed out, it seems to be fairly undisputed that art is a form of making. Of course, skeptics will immediately try to find counterexamples, perhaps pointing yet again to Marcel Duchamp's infamous Fountain. Oh, okay, here yet if <laughs> I have to give you one painting at least that has clearly thought nature implications. <laughs> right? But no, uh, sorry, from the supply to the ridiculous here. But uh, <clears throat> so. You probably have all seen that before because it's constantly being quoted. You know, the fountain is a urinal indeed. Um, and this urinal is factory made that is ready made. That's how he calls it, ready-made. hence not made by an artist. So that seems like a an counterexample. And yet we do, after all, regard it as a work by Duchamp because it is he who put it up in an exhibition. And in doing so, he made something after all, for he made a point, whatever it's supposed to be. And I think one can even go further <laughs> on trying to explain that. But I think that's not necessarily a counterexample, in other words. Earlier, we had said that art is like a language, the making of meaning. So, naturally and a theory, making is included in our definition of art. It is a form of making. Making is the proximate genus of the definition whatever further specifications are needed to make the definition complete. The first thing to notice about this is that by this definition, art must be yet another way of imitating third nature. In making, we imitate God himself, for God himself is a maker. And one of the things he made is us. And since he made us in His image and likeness, this must include being a maker in our own right. This does not, however, hasten to say, mean that God is in the same genus as we are. That's a no-no, namely the genus or class of all things that are makers. For there is still a difference, as we have already seen in a number of ways. We imitate the natures of things that God has made, including our own. That is what making means for us. But God not only makes, he creates. And this means that God does not imitate any pre-existing nature because there is nothing that pre-exists creation that he could use as a model. The only thing that pre-exists creation is himself. God in making imitates only thought nature, namely himself. God is rightly an expressivist. In that, in creating, he is expressing only his own nature. And perhaps you know, it indicates that pure expressivism is a bit preposterous. <laughs> it tries to be like God in that. Um, and that is, of course, why we find nature worth imitating as an expression not just of God's design, but of God Himself. Nature is able to be imitated by art only because it itself was understood by analogy to art in the first place, namely God's art. That is what my teacher, Robert Spielmann, said. Can this making be understood further? Thomas Aquinas defines making as the recta ratio factibilium, the right reason of what can be made. It is to be distinguished from the recta ratio agibilium, the right reason uh, of what can be done, which concerns not art, but morality. So going from the top down. So there is, um, first of all, the uh, for speculative intellect, what we can know the right reason of what can be understood. This is pure theory. When it comes to practical things and the way the intellect is involved in practical knowledge and practical knowing what should be done, there's first of all what we do. Doing something is not yet making, but it is things like behavior, moral action, and it is governed by a form of reason too. And it aims at the good of man. That's what Aristotle calls praxis. And it's governed by prudence, especially it's a moral virtue. But then uh, you have also the rector ratio factibilium, and that is the. um, Where am I here? Uh, Let me just explain it here. Uh, So, the right reason of what can be made, and that is um, what can say artistic activity, but one has to be careful. The term ars here in Latin means both utilitarian kind of forms of making, making, you know. um, record player or a motorcycle or something like that, or a piece of art. sculpture or something else. But all of these would be falling under poiesis, where you have a product that is being made. And the rest I'll talk about in a moment. <clears throat> all of these form a kind of hierarchy or sequence, which helps to understand the place of art and making of art and making within the field of human activity. What we can see here are several things. First, that art is not mere thought, even though some authors have thought that. So, for example, Plotinus or Friedrich Daniel Schleiermacher, they considered the true work of art, just the conception in the mind of the artist. And modern conceptual artists uh, um, thought something very similar here. Um, But here the making, the making would be missing. What is true about this is that making is indeed preceded by knowing. It is not a blind process, not an emanation of natural forces or something as in animals that make something like a nest or a honeycomb by mere instinct. That would be just derived from always the same old nature. It would not create anything new. There would be no new insight based on which you make a new form of art, nor would it depend on free choice as it does in us. There is no unconscious or involuntary making of art. It presupposes an idea that we pursue and freedom and choosing to do so. And here again, we share something with God for the thought and insight that is at the root of knowledge, as well as of making and finally of art is conceived in beauty, as Plato says. Thoughts are conceived, which means that they are begotten and not made, as it says in the Creed about the divine logos, the divine thought or concept. And it is only subsequently that through this divine word, all things are made and not begotten. All making just as all thinking is consequent upon begetting that is true for us and for God. And Once more, therefore, we imitate third nature in the very act of making out. But the thought that is so conceived is not yet making the artist's artistic concept needs to be expressed. And in expressing it, <coughs> we make something in a physical medium. However, here we need some further distinctions. Not all physical expression is art or making. Some of it is also simply doing, says just earlier, which is subject to the recta ratio agibilium and ruled by morality and ethical convictions. These regulate lived life and forms of activity that are a necessary context for our further acts of making. But they are not themselves acts of making, even though acting and doing are also a physical expression of an interior state. Think of spontaneous expressions of joy in dancing. For someone like Schleiermacher, this is indeed a paradigm case of art, but I don't think that's quite right because dancing is a doing, not a making to speak with Aristotle. It is a praxis and not a poiesis. I can dance, I can have a conversation, but it's not a form of making, let alone of art. Putting on a ballet, on the other hand, is art, just as writing a dialogue can be a form of art. Unlike dancing, staging ballet is the making of something. It has an identifiable product. One more distinction is needed, however. For we make not only art, we write not only dramas, but also newspaper articles. We make not only sculptures, but also chairs and spacecrafts. This is a making of utilitarian objects of means to further ends. It is the making of tools for further purposes. And this is not just another kind of making besides that of fine arts, as we call them. Rather, it is a making that is a necessary precondition for the making of the fine arts. And this may be a claim that is peculiar to what I'm proposing. I've not heard anybody else saying that. The Greeks called both the making of tools or technology and the making of art by the same term technique. That's where we get technology from. And in in Latin arts, I just said that's where we add art from. And we therefore sometimes try to make a distinction by talking about fine arts, the arts of the beautiful. Art in our sense is the making of beautiful things. And there's truth in that, but it is not sufficient. Making conversation can be beautiful as well. And some chairs are beautiful too, but that may be accidental to them and it does not make them into a fine art. Here then is my proposal. Art is a second order form of making one in which our utilitarian making becomes itself the concern of a further insight. We will illustrate this in a moment, but I want to note first that this does indeed have to do with beauty as well, though in a different sense. For Aquinas, beauty is the combination of the two transcendentals of the good and the true. Now, if I'm right, then we are dealing in art with a second order combination of the good with the true, namely, insofar as the utilitarian pursuit of the good by our tools becomes itself the object of a further renewed cognitive concern, a concern for a truth about it. And therefore, it satisfies as such the definitions of the arts of the beautiful. There's a simple way of illustrating what I have in mind. Tool use is not unique to humans. Animals make tools such as nests, honeycombs and spider webs. Some of them have even learned to use new tools beyond mere instinctual behavior. Chimpanzee, for example, can learn how to use a stick to get to bananas. This is actually from 1916 or something very early. People have always tried to look at that. Um, Now, let us say an anthropologist in a jungle comes across a bunch of sticks. How does he know whether these are tools used by an ape or by a human being? The answer is there's one thing that only human beings do. Only they decorate their tools. Even if quite simply, what does that mean? It means that the tool has become a focus of attention in its own right. The means have become an end, a thing in it by itself, as if it had a first nature of its own, independently from us. With that, it ceases to be a mere tool. Ordinary tools are what they are, only dependent on our purposes. They embody our purposes. They embody, for example, the desire for a banana. They relate us, the subjects, to the object of our desire to that banana. They embody our intention. But in our tool use, this is not the focus. The focus is on the banana, just as for the ape. On the other hand, no chimpanzee is interested in the stick independently from the banana or the coconut or whatever else it is. But we are. Studies show that unlike apes, human children are curious to learn how to use tools, even independently from any goal that they may want to achieve which illustrates an insight of Aristotle, who says that we are the most imitative of all animals. Child children imitate the use of tools independently from any other benefit, but rather in a disinterested way. And it is this kind of imitation, which is constitutive of art or so I want to suggest. It is a second order making, which does not just conclude the sequence of right reason, but reflects back on it. Similar tool something like this. Mm-hmm. So you have <clears throat> the subject and the subject is an insight and lead to an action and then to making, and then you have art. And that's not just about the thing out here, but reflecting back on the whole sequence, because on making it su- uh, mm-hmm. such, but also on the whole sequence, I think, and um, well, we can come back to that later too, but um, that may suffice for more for the moment. Why do only human beings make art? <clears throat> Because we are not only aware of subjects as animals are, we are also aware of ourselves as subjects in our relationship to the object. We reflect on that relationship and know ourselves as subjects in distinction from the objects. We have a mind that does not only know, but knows that it knows, a mind that is aware of its awareness, a mind that is self-conscious. And art does precisely that, as I will show in a moment. It makes appear how things appear to us. It discloses to us how the world is disclosed to us and thereby makes our being in the world thematic. It is not a mere illusion or virtual reality. It is not a mere appearance, but an appearance as an appearance. When we dream that we dream, then we are awake. We cannot watch ourselves having an illusion. Hence, contrary to Plato, imitation and art is not a mere illusion. Now, how does art do that? Art is a kind of language I said earlier. Every language is also a tool. But artistic language is a second order tool. Art is the making of a language that functions as a second order tool. It is a tool about tools. Now, utilitarian tools of the first order sort are of two kinds. Um, and yeah, here we are again, <clears throat> practical and theoretical. So tools in the normal sense, you know, extensions of our arms and so forth are tools that what I have in mind here, but they're also theoretical tools and language and image uh, falls into that category. And the different forms of art will then, so I'll say, relate to one or the other painting, literature and sculpture, a second order making of the theoretical kind, architecture and music of the practical kind. Practical tools are physical extensions of our bodies and its needs, such as sticks, shelters, and bicycles. They can also be physical sound waves as warning signals or mating calls, cell phone ringtones, commercial sound design, and music may also fall into this category. All of these are not art, but utilitarian means to an end. Theoretical tools are things, Uh, are physical things that serve cognitive functions, such as passport photos and MRIs, but also biology, textbooks, newspapers, accounting ledgers and encyclopedias. Notice that both theoretical and practical tools already imitate nature. Theoretical tools imitate nature by representing it. Practical tools imitate nature in its operation, as Aristotle says. Airplane wings imitate the wings of birds in the operation, for example, and that's where engineers indeed took the inspiration from. As a second order making art contains those forms of imitation as well, but it cannot be reduced to it. Art makes a language that communicates and makes visible and appreciates something about these representations and operations. It does so by making the medium itself thematic. Hence, again, medium is important here. And so, hence, in the case of theoretical tools, not every image is a form of art, not even every beautiful image, but only an image in which the medium is part of the message. Similarly, in the case of practical tools, which become thematic in their decoration, as we have seen earlier. Now, let us illustrate this. Practical tools are about utilitarian purposes, such as reaching bananas or sheltering human bodies. In the latter case, we build a house. But that is not yet architecture. As Henry Thoreau points out in Walden, here's Henry Thoreau in Walden <laughs> the, um, at the lake there. a um, the toolbox would suffice as a place to sleep and it would have the additional utility that one can carry it around as well. He is the first modernist in architecture. But architecture is not just about utility, as modernism seemed to think. If, as they say, say, form follows function, then a toolbox may be enough. But then the essential difference of art is left out. Architecture becomes indeed a utilitarian machine, as Le Corbusier envisions it for his industrial cities, in which he thought, you know, houses should be built like cars in a serial kind of fashion, and you can order the house that way. And um, this is how that looks like, and it's in Germany, actually. Um, The 20th century polemic against ornament ornamented architecture is a polemic against the very character of architecture as art. So if you uh, decorate tools, we would expect to do that for a tool like a house as well. And if you deny that, then you're reducing it back to a first order tool. Take a simple example like a wall, the Berlin Wall, for example. The Berlin Wall made no attempt at being a piece of architecture. It was a matter of mere utility something to keep people in communist East Germany. It is interesting to see that this is a provocation not only to a human sense of justice, but also to a human sense of artistry. Graffiti respond to both of these senses at once. To look for something better, we do not have to go to the great masterworks of architecture. An older railway wall in London will do as well. Here, the vocabulary of great architecture has become a vernacular. It's interesting you talk about vernacular in architecture, it's a linguistic term, right? Um, but it's a vernacular of which even average architects could avail themselves. A utilitarian wall has nothing to hold our gaze. In fact, it repels us, it does not invite to be looked at. The London wall, by contrast, here is like a decorated tool. While it is still a wall and serves its purpose, it articulates its very purpose and makes us appreciate its role by architectural features that hold our gaze as the pilasters, the swelling of the wall, the base and something like a cornice that you have in there too. These and even the material of brick articulate the wall in a human scaled rhythm and make it a focus of human interest in its own right. They articulate what it means to be a wall in human life. Similar things can be said about staircases that serve the purpose of ascending from one level to the next. This is the Petit Trianon in the um, Park of Versailles. In true architecture, the deeper meaning of what it means to ascend is articulated and appreciated and celebrated, even. While a purely utilitarian conception of the same is outrightly dehumanizing. This is Le Corbusier, a different view of the same. It may not be immediately obvious that something similar can be said about music, but sounds in ordinary life do serve utilitarian functions as well. The, The operations that they serve often have to do with attention getting. A scream of pain from a child gets the mother's attention. The mother's lullaby or cooing sounds in turn calm the child. Evolutionary aesthetics will highlight the features of warning calls for survival, as well as bird songs for getting a mate and propagating one's genes. Some of these functions are manipulative and are extended in human technology, like sound design for advertisement, a music for, to modulate people's moods and behaviors. Here in this case, actually, sounds function not only when they do not get our attention. Paying attention to elevator music would be maddening. It is not meant to be aesthetic, but anesthetic. (laughs) Cell phone ring tools, doorbells and alarm clocks in turn may use this maddening effect precisely to get your attention simply because you want to make it stop. In all of these ways, they are first order tools, not music in the sense of art. Art is exactly something that makes you want to pay attention, not for the sake of ulterior or extrinsic ends, but for its own sake. Imagine again a screaming baby. A baby will typically emit sounds that are whining, gliding up and down an undifferentiated slope of pitches as the baby will not stay on one pitch. Now, let us imagine that in the midst of all the wailing, a child would suddenly stop and hold the tone on one identifiable pitch. The child might start to listen with fascination to that one identifiable tone it is producing. That is the beginning of music. The child has started to pay attention to the tool or signal itself. It has made the means into an end. In time, the child might learn how to make simple flutes or other instruments to produce such pitches. Typically, it will also begin to decorate these tools as well. But as to the music itself, it does not make us think of any further purpose, nor even of the physical causes that produced it. The notes have become something in their own right. What matters are the relations of the tones within the musical piece, not the relation to external causes and purposes, just as the relations of the parts of the London Railway Wall became a point of interest, independently from the function that the wall serves. In both cases, both architecture and music (coughs) will still retain elements of their primary purposes of gravity and functional structure in architecture, emotional tones and affectivity in music. But at the same time, we have started to pay, to pay attention to the medium and tool for its own sake. The primary expressions and functions are, so to speak, in quotation marks. They are mentioned, not used. They are exemplified, as Nelson Goodman might say. They are listened to rather than followed. That is why we do not rush on the stage to console the soprano over a woes. <laughs> we don't think of it as a signal for something real, but we listen to it in its own way. How about the theoretical tools and their respective arts? And I'm running short of time here. But uh, consider a painting or a drawing. This is by Adolf Menzel, 19th century painter and drawing. Um, what do we see if we look at that? We see a woman. But is that all we see? No, we also see the brush or pencil strokes. Can I zoom in on? There? I better don't. If you would focus, well, let's hold that. So you also see the brush or pencil strokes, the shapes and forms that are used to make her visible. In other words, we see the medium and we must see both together at once. For that is itself part of what we appreciate in art. Our interest is not in the woman alone, but in how the artist achieved making her present to us. To appreciate art means to appreciate both of these things together. The twofold, as Richard Wolheim has called it. I think it's a good term. If all that we see is the woman, then we do not see a work of art. We do not see a painting at all, but we are having an illusion. It would be like a deception or living in the matrix or virtual reality simulation. What if, on the other hand, we only see the brushstrokes? or other features that account for the medium um, or how something is represented, forms, colors, and other features. Then we would have an abstract painting perhaps. Um, again, I cannot zero in, but if you would zero in on some of these brushstrokes just on, them on their own, or I mean, the second here, something like that, you could actually think you're looking at an abstract painting right? because you're losing sight of the content here. But perhaps, um, so, You might think it's an abstract painting, you know, in fact, you know, there are people reflecting even on that (laughs) by a painting brush strokes. But let me go back to this, so. um, But you would not perhaps even see that if you just see colors and shapes without significance, something would see something like wallpaper. Or patterns of a necktie, as Kandinsky suggested and he was aware of what he was doing and how that could be problematic. What you do need to hold together are both content and the medium. And the place where you do that is your mind. In other words, we need all three sides of the triangle. So the twofold is basically these two things that we hold together in the mind is how the twofold works. In literature, finally, language as the medium is thematic as well. That is what distinguishes poetry from newspaper reports. In poetry in particular, we find ornamentation just as in architecture, namely musical forms such as rhyme, assonance and rhythm. And it is worth recalling that before the advent of the modern prose novel, uh, almost all literature had such features. Quite obviously, also fiction. Fiction is the bracketing of first order communicative functions of language. Fiction is ipso facto literature, telling a story for its own sake, independently from its reference to the real world, is paying attention to the medium of storytelling as such. But not all literature is fiction. But even then, there are other features that make it literature, such as, for example, metaphor. A newspaper or military report represents just the information it needs to convey. So we may find in such a report, in the morning we investigated the territory. By contrast, in Homer's Homer's Odyssey, we read, when the child of morning, rosy fingered dawn appeared, we admired the island and and wandered all over it. This metaphorical representation of dawn does not mean that dawn literally is a child or has fingers though something about it is expressed in that comparison. But two things happen in this use of metaphor, namely that the content appears and that the medium appears. It is another twofold. The content appears because dawn itself appears. As we are induced to use our imagination by the comparison, it brings before our inner eye the thing itself, as Hegel observed about metaphor. But it also makes the medium of language itself appear. That is the way in which something is represented because it is a quasi ornamental way of speaking. It is an elevated form of speech and something to admire and appreciate in Homer. Hence, it is something that can never be replaced by a paraphrase that just gives the content that would lose the twofold. Literature is language even in an ordinary sense of the word. But as literature, it is also a language about language, a meta language of sorts. So in all forms of art I will leave sculpture out for the time, another time, we have a twofold. Um, and so we need therefore all three sides of the triangle. In all of that, um, and maybe I should draw this to a conclusion here. Oh, it's not that much anymore. Um, uh, we also imitate our very own nature as embodied actors and perceivers. So we do see, I mean, the woman is perceiving here, so it's a of perceiving itself already, but it's even in the medium itself, uh, we reflect on how things appear to us in the medium. And if it's the appearance of an appearance, that is what our mind does too. And so it's reflective of our way of perceiving. And in that sense, an imitation of our very own first nature. And then finally, there's one more point. In making utilitarian means into an end in themselves, in making tools an object of contemplation and cancelling their functions so as to pay attention to them, art also imitates third nature. And had some said something already, but just to finish that, to begin with, in abstracting from extrinsic utilitarian purposes, art provides a disinterested pleasure, as Kant rightly pointed out. That is why art ceases to be art where it is used for advertisement, for posters, for rhetoric or propaganda. Art to be art must in that sense, indeed, be for its own sake. In art, therefore, we as makers imitate God himself, who does not create out of needy or selfish interest or for ulterior motives, but freely and out of pure generosity. The work of art reflects on this gratuity of the act of existence as an insight. It can become an expression of joy, of celebrating the gift of existence and gratitude. Art also transforms our utilitarian acts of making into acts of contemplation by envisioning them in the twofold. Art makes the homo faber into a homo sapiens again. In doing so, the artist acts like God who, after making his creatures, steps back and sees that it is good and rests. Art is what Hegel said of philosophy, the Sabbath of life. Art embodies the leisure that generates culture. It is the capstone of the unfolding of being, knowing, acting and making, and that it returns to contemplate this development in beauty. Hence, art is our way of participating in God's Sabbath rest, and we typically do this in divine worship, in which we thank God and praise him for being our maker. Art is ultimately something we make for God. This is why liturgical rites always were the place from which the arts were fed and renewed. And we wonder why today this is not the case anymore. Liturgy is a place of contemplation, but at the same time also a place of making the making of music, for example. It is not pure contemplation, but contemplation after making. And for human beings, contemplation may very well never be without such making. Perhaps there is no homo sapiens without homo faber, no philosopher without an artist. By the artistic envisioning and imitating of nature, we gather all the manifold ends of our various tools and pursuits specie eterni under this viewpoint of eternity. The composer Anton Bruckner dedicated his last symphony to God himself, dem lieben Gott gewidmet. And rightly so, because in all our making of art, God has always been our final audience.